Today in the garage, we have the undeniable Hussein Ali. Hussein is a barrister and solicitor with Rusonic, O'Connor, Robbins, Ross, and Angelini. His partner Brian Ross says, Hussein is incredible. And the most incredible thing about him is that he is consistently incredible. Today we talked about pretrial motions, trials, and the importance of the closing address. Whether you're driving your Tesla, shredding your Jackson, or prepping for a mistrial application, let's step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get a tune-up. Same. Hi. Thank oh, you for joining us. So, I, I thank you for agreeing to share some of your knowledge. I want to go through the pretrial process and the trial process because they are connected and there's a lot that you can share. So how important is it as part of your career and as yourself as a lawyer, a criminal lawyer, how important are pretrial motions? Well, in, in some cases, they're completely they're the entire case. So I think identifying any pretrial uh, application that you have to bring in a particular case is, is really critical. Uh, you don't want to be in a situation also, like, for example, in a 276 application where you're in the middle of a trial and you're in an embarrassing situation where you haven't brought an application that you should have brought before. And, you know, you, there might be some liability issues there if you can't lead evidence that could otherwise have been or led to you being victorious. So pretrial applications are very critical. So how, how, how do you strategize? What do you do once you get the disclosure so that you can map out how things are going to unfold? I think the, the first thing you do is you do a comprehensive review of the disclosure, obviously, and you quickly identify the defense. Because once you identify what the defense is, that'll open your eyes as to what other applications are required or whether other applications would assist your defense, whether it be having some hearsay admitted for a defense purpose, for example, or have some evidence excluded. Once you know what your defense is, that's going to help you identify what pretrial applications have to be brought. Can we talk about the nuts and bolts of some pretrial applications? The onus uh, many times will be on us as defense counsel, but we have to recognize that the crowns have an obligation. Similar fact evidence, bad character evidence. We should not just lay back. We need to be able to recognize what the burden is and who owns it and what the evidence is that needs to be marshaled. So um, what are some of the crown uh, applications that you uh, make sure that your client, if the Crown's going to suggest that, you know, they want to bring this type of evidence in, that uh, you put the brakes on and say, well, let's see the proper application record. Yeah, obviously similar factor, any bad character type of evidence is definitely things you don't want the jury to hear. A lot of times in a lot of jury cases, for example, you might be dealing with a factual background that already has your client looking bad. It might be a drug deal gone wrong. It might be a shooting in a, in a, in a, in a crack house, for example and you don't want further additional evidence or bad character evidence to go again in against your client. So I think anything that makes your client look bad uh, negatively leaves a bad picture about your client. Uh, you want to limit that as much as possible, uh, even in circumstances where it fits your theory, because a lot of times your defense is, I'm a bad guy, but I didn't do this particular bad act. But even in those circumstances, I think you want to limit uh, bad character evidence for sure. When you're bringing an application uh, on behalf of your client, what is the process you go through to ensure that you have a, a proper record for the court? Um, so, you know, we, we don't have prelims as, as much as before, but before this or before the legislative amendments, obviously uh, creating a proper record of the preliminary inquiry was, was critical. 
I think you'd have to know in, in cases where you do get a preliminary inquiry, you have to know what application you're going to bring down the line. You can't be or you're wasting an opportunity if you conduct a preliminary inquiry and you haven't thought to set up your Section 8 or your Section 9 or your Section 10B or whatever application um, you deem necessary. The application itself, we know that the rules are there uh, either at the provincial court or the superior court. Um, and, and it's so important that uh, young lawyers recognize that th- th- this is there is a roadmap out there. Even if it's as simple as a, a, as a bail review, there's a roadmap that tells you what you need. Um, when you build a record, how important is it to have the affidavits or the other part of the paper record or whatever else you're going to include in that record? I think it's, it's, it's very important that you have excellent materials. I think that's your first uh, impression if the judge doesn't know you. Uh, it, uh, if you're a young lawyer, for example, and they're seeing your name on a, on a FACTA for the very first time or an application record, I think completeness, compliance with the rules, those all reflect positively on you. And if the opposite is true. If you start off a, a trial and the judge has never heard of you before and your materials are late and they haven't complied with the rules, uh, you're going to get off to a, a bad start. You don't want to leave that negative impression with your trial judge or your trial of fact, your trial of law, uh, right from the beginning. So I think compliance with the rules is, is something you should really learn, master, and, and, and follow. Some applications you may feel, well, I'm not sure if I'm going to be successful on that. Or you may feel that, well, that's sort of new ground. How is this court going to take it? Um, what's your advice to young lawyers out there? Uh, that have uh, uh, emotion that they're feeling that they should bring. It's in their gut. They know that it's the right thing to do, but they're worried about the success. Uh, I think you shouldn't feel um, trepidatious about bringing an application that's novel or that you might think is not successful. If it's not frivolous, most trials triers of fact will respect the fact that you've brought the application. You've advanced it in a, in, a, in a respectable fashion and done your job. So I think it's important for lawyers to have the courage and to challenge, especially early on in your career when you have additional time to think of new ideas and new arguments bring those uh, cases, take them to court. Um, I think we've all been surprised in the bar with some of the recent appellant decisions from the Ontario Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court of Canada. Things happen uh, that surprise you uh, even after so many years. So I think it's important for young lawyers and enjoy this time period where you have the time to think of a new issue and go out there and and tread uh, new ground and cut down the forest. I think you shouldn't uh, be hesitant to bring those applications. See, I'm sort of jealous of young lawyers and those that are coming in because they're more in touch with what is going on in the community. I, I think over a period of time, no matter how I try, I'm getting old. I'm not getting conservative, but I'm getting old. And, and uh, I, I think that um, what you have indicated, the way that the novel argument can be brought, we shouldn't be surprised, although, you know, uh, we, we are welcome by some of the good law that we're seeing coming out of the different courts. Um, I want to just move on uh, to, you've made that application. It may not have gone your way, um, but you're running the trial. In the back of your mind, do you ensure that you uh, have a proper record uh, in case there is appeal? 
Yeah, I think it's important, especially early on in your career, to, to have an appellant lawyer that you can speak to to say, how can I can improve the record? How can I protect the record? Is there anything that could be fatal to my appeal if I don't address it? So you have the best record. I think the best structured uh, appeals are ones where an appeal lawyer is involved in the process before, not after. Because afterwards, you don't want to be speaking to an appeal lawyer afterwards and they're telling you, you should have done A, you should have done B, you should have done C. Um, so I think it's important to have an appellant lawyer in your corner, uh, someone who can help um, <clears throat> you do whatever it takes to create the best record. It might be something as simple as, you know, a lot of lawyers may not realize that you can renew applications in the middle of a trial. Factually, something may change. You know, that, that happens a lot in 276 applications. Maybe the witness says something that opens a door that was otherwise closed. So I think it's important to speak with an appeal lawyer, have one in your corner for every trial that you do. If you were able to give three uh, bits of advice to a young lawyer about to embark on their uh, uh, first pretrial application. I'd say know the law. You want to go into court knowing the law better than the judge. That's your goal. That may not be the truth, but that definitely you want that to be your goal because what's going to happen is when you walk into a courtroom and you feel like you know the law better than the judge, it gives you confidence. If you walk into a courtroom and you feel like, oh, I, there's a case out there maybe I didn't read or I don't really understand this, that's going to show, that's going to impact your confidence in the courtroom, that's going to impact your ability to question the witnesses. So definitely know the law. Uh, number two, make sure you've called all of the evidence. I think it's important to, for defense lawyers to realize that you, know, you can call evidence too. You can go out there and get surveillance footage. You can go and call a witness. Uh, prepare your witnesses and, and marshal evidence that supports your argument. Uh, and number three, I think prepare, uh, prepare, prepare, prepare your nice materials, prepare your submissions. You can never be overprepared. Uh, and the more prepared you are, again, that's going to impact your confidence and that's going to help you present better. I know that when you're in court, we can see that how prepared you are. I've had the opportunity to sit in the body of the court and see you in action. And uh, I, I think that there's a, a, a connection between being prepared and being able to bring with confidence in a fearless manner that application. Um, I know that you've run a tremendous number of trials and jury trials. I, I want to draw upon your experience and share um, your strategy uh, with our audience um, in how you deal with uh, different cases that might be in provincial court or in superior court or jury trials in superior court. So first, and, and, and you're going to, when you, when you get a case and it gets easier, the more cases you do, you want to identify the defense as, as soon as possible. The, the quicker you can identify the defense, it, like for example, a case just happens, you get the arrest call at the bail hearing. I start thinking about what the defense is going to be. I try to get, once I see the synopsis, though the, this might be the defense, what can I get to assist this? So for example, if it's a stop and search case, where the client's saying that never happened, you know, I had my seatbelt on, the police officer's not telling the truth, and the synopsis says that he wasn't wearing a seatbelt, I want surveillance footage. You want to get out there, because some of this stuff gets erased in, in 10 days, right? So you want to get out there and subpoena the, that material as soon as possible. So I think you identify the defense, and then you go and you marshal as much uh, evidence as you can there. So when you have that uh, opportunity to sort of figure out what the defense is, are there any strategic, um, and, and, and I guess if we think pre-C75 and post-C75, was there any strategy you would employ as to when you'd want to stay in the lower courts or when you'd go, want to go to superior court? Did it matter by jurisdiction? Did it matter by the type of nature of case? Uh, what was your personal view on it? 
So like some cases are going to be, some cases are going to be, um, a charter case only, right? So you might have a case where there's a firearm in a vehicle and, and the real battle there is why the person was, was stopped. And they say, I wasn't speeding and the officer says they were. And in a case like that, you go back to what I said and you, you try to get as much evidence to support your theory. But there'll be other cases where there's going to be a pre-charter application, a, a charter application and a trial afterwards. And I think in, in, in those circumstances, you want to bounce the defense off as many lawyers as you can and, and get their vibe, right? And if, if their vibe is leaning towards conviction, then I think you, you, you go with the jury trial, right? That's the way the way I like to look at it. If, if I myself wouldn't have a doubt based on the defense, then I likely go to jury because juries are hearing things for the very first time. They're not they're not looking at things like, oh, this person's probably saying what he needs to, to to get out of trouble. This is the only thing he can say. But a trier of fact, and I've had trier of facts say that to me, you know, this is or trial of triers of law and, and jury trials say, well, listen, I, I know what all the possible defenses are. So they come at it. Some some courts come at it with a cynical view. But I lean personally, um, the more um, out there your defense is, the more it's going to be jury for me. Um, and I like preliminary inquiries when I can get them. Uh, because a case can be whatever it is in the disclosure. It's a different story after the preliminary inquiry. So I like preliminary inquiries. Therefore, my election usually is judge and jury uh, when I can get one. Uh, and if my defense um, is one that's kind of out there, I'm going to stick with my jury. Jury trials, they're fun? Yeah. Exciting? <laughs> they're, they're fun, exciting. I think they become more uh, stressful and, 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 you know, you're, you're just concerned. It, it's a lot of work, right? The, the win becomes, the win makes you happy, but I think it's, it, it becomes less enjoyable as you go along. But the, the win is great, but there are a lot of work. I know that on the front lines, a number of criminal lawyers are out there every day doing trials in provincial court, and others uh, end up, you know, uh, one after another doing a, a jury trial. And uh, both are gladiator type of, uh, of practice. Uh, but when you're in front of a jury, how do you employ... You know, you talk to us about preparation, so you create your theory of the defense. But how do you employ theme? So the the like again, I, I when you're doing a jury trial, I think the first place to start is your closing address, because when you know what you're going to say at the end, that's what gives you the roadmap throughout the trial to to understand this evidence is important because it supports what I'm going to say at the end. If something isn't is, isn't going to be said at the end and doesn't support your case, and you don't worry about it, it also helps you have mental clarity during the trial. Because when you know your theory cold and you know your themes, you're able to extract them and you're able to know what's important and what isn't. So you don't get caught up in objecting about things that don't matter or waste any mental energy on things that don't matter or cross-examining a witness, for example, for no apparent reason. Because those are all things that the, the jury is pretty clever at picking up what the themes are if you've presented them well. And they'll know when you're wasting time and you never want that to be the case. You want to stay focused. This is my defense jury. This is what I'm saying happened. And this is all the evidence that supports uh, my theory. So I think once you've identified the defense, the theories will be there for you. And again, when you're younger, I think speak to as many lawyers as you can because they'll, they'll, they'll give you more ideas to work with. For juries, uh, how quick do you get the theory out? I try, to, I try to get the theory out from the exhibit officer, witness number one, because I think if you look at all the science behind juries, um, juries, they, they fill in the gaps in the evidence and they start leaning one way or the other. So I think the, the sooner you can get your theory out there to the jury, they're able to process all the information considering your theory. So I think it's critical that the jury knows he's saying this is what happened. So they'll, they themselves will hear a piece of evidence and say, well, that supports the defense theory. That supports the defense theory. So for me, 
uh, the first possible opportunity I try to get my theory out there. So if the first officer that the Crown calls ends up being the exhibits officer, for example, uh, can you just give us a quick exchange how you'd get that theory out so that those that are listening and thinking about about to embark on their first jury trial understand how it can be done and how important it is to get it out, as you say, as soon as possible. So the, 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 way, the way it's done is that you, you, just, you can just put it to the officer. The officer is going to be up there saying, oh, well, I found this piece of evidence here and this piece of evidence here. And you can say, well, officer, you can tell us this and you can tell us that, but you can't tell us who brought the firearm there. You can't tell us if there was a struggle over the firearm. And obviously, right, uh, he's going to say, no, I can't, no, I can't, no, I can't. But at least the jury will know at that particular point, well, this is where we're going with this. You know, the trial judge may or may not let you get too far with that. I think I make decisions based on who who the judge is as well, because you don't want to, you know, create an opportunity to get cut down in front of the jury either uh, and lose some credit in front of the jury. But, you know, if you, if you have a trial judge who's willing to let, let the chips fall where they are, then you do so. You do things like that. Um, have you had situations where judges try to cut you off, stop you? limit your ability to get your theory out or, or, or to bring it in through a different witness? I, I, I can say that I, I haven't had too many uh, things like that happen. I've had them happen, not too often, um, but they do happen. And what you want to know is if you have a judge who's, you know, known for doing things like that, don't give them the opportunity uh, to do that, right? So, there's certain things that happen during a trial where you, you like, like I was saying earlier, you might do something in front of one judge that you don't do in front of another because you just don't want to give them the opportunity to cut you down in front of the jury because a jury trial is all about maintaining your integrity, maintaining the jury's confidence in you. And the person with the most confidence that they have in, in, the, in the room is the trial judge for the most part. Uh, and that usually is the case the entire way through. So when when the highest power in the courtroom is showing contempt for you, it really uh, you know detracts from your ability to persuade the jury. So I think uh, what you do is you try to stay away from things that can get you in trouble. So know the rules. And then if you really have to dive into an area that's dicey, you maybe you raise it with the judge before, so you know he he doesn't go crazy on you in front of the jury. So I think you, you definitely do want to maintain your credibility with the jury and you want to avoid those opportunities. But if it, they happen, and if they happen, if a judge is taking a swing at you, sometimes I think you just have to explain to the judge, which, which is really for the jury, why you're doing it. So it, that impression that you've broken the rules isn't left with the jury. And then the jury may side with you. They may say, well, yeah, I, I kind of wanted to hear what the witness was going to say about that for the reasons the defense lawyer just said. So you, you got to, it's, it's a moving target there and you got to deal with it in the moment, right? So I've had the situation where I've had to kind of push back. Uh, and then if you really feel it's undermining, if it's happening a lot, for example, like you raise it, raise it when the jury isn't there. And, you know, let the judge know, Your Honor, I'm really concerned that you're, you're undermining me consistently from the jury. I think it's going to negatively impact my client and it may stop, right? So I, I want to move quickly to what research do you do about your jurist? You want you want to know everything. You want to. I think over time you obviously become familiar yourself with the judges. But again, speak to lawyers. Speak to as many lawyers as you can. Get feedback on their experiences, and you'll learn tendencies, and you'll learn things that may irritate that judge, so you can stay away from them, or something that may persuade that judge. So just speak to lawyers. Like it's no secret. Lawyers talk about other lawyers. Lawyers talk about judges. Judges talk about lawyers as well. Like everybody has a reputation. You're going to learn that earlier in your career. So just get get as much information as you can to help you make decisions during the trial. 
I remember when I first started, I would be terrified to even open my mouth in court. And I can imagine being a young lawyer today, hearing you saying, well, if the judge is being unfair, when the jury's excused, you'll raise it with the judge. Explain how you do that and how people have to understand and young lawyers have to understand that it is part about being a fearless advocate. Yeah, I think it's really about how you do it versus what you're doing. Like there, you could do it in a way that's rude and disrespectful and it's not going to get you anywhere. You, you want to do it like you're just begging for help. You want to do it in the most respectful way possible. And I think a lot of judges will, will respect that. They'll, they'll, under, they'll know why you're saying this. They'll know you're, you're doing it, you know, reluctantly, but out of necessity, and they can respect it. And if they don't, you, you've done what you can. Um, there are circumstances where you're just going to have to deal with that. Um, but, you know, you may take solace that if, if, if a trial judge is treating you that way, it probably, the impact of it is probably going to wear off because the jury may end up feeling sorry for you, right? Especially if they feel like this is a young guy working hard or a young girl working hard who's doing a good job, who's, who's you know, showing me the evidence that I need to decide this case. I think it may backfire, right? Because if the judge is trying to undermine you, you may get more credibility because it'd be like, you know, this person, you know, persevered even though the judge was on them the entire time, right? I want to sort of slide into objections because people have different views of whether you should object in front of a jury or, or when you should bring an objection in front of a jury or if you should have them excused. What's your rule of thumb? I try not to object. Um, uh, objections are the last resort for me. If you have to object, then you do it. I think a lot of trial judges now are laying out the rules um, before the game starts, if I can say so. Like they, they'll tell you objections, you stand up, you raise the objection, I want the jury out. Other judges are willing to let things go back and forth in front of the jury because that becomes a game itself because now everybody's giving speeches on the record. Uh, so I think yet you have to be ready um, that if you're going to get in this game of uh, let's make speeches in front of the jury uh, to get our theory out or to undermine the other opponent or to do whatever to advance your side of the case, you have to be ready for that. But, you know, if you have to object, you stand up and you make your objection. If it's an objection that you feel should happen without the jury there, then ask for the jury to be excused. The trial, some trial judges would be like, no, say it now. Let's do it. Let's do it here. So you have to be prepared to do it one way or the other, uh, especially in a circumstance where the judge hasn't laid down the rules. And a lot of times the rules change. A judge, after so much, so many speeches by both parties on the record, may say, listen, the next time there's an objection, I want everybody to be quiet and I want the jury out and I'll hear you. Uh, but again, you got you got to deal with it as it happens and every trial is going to be different. But um, uh, if you have to object, you make your objection. It's funny, I was in a, in a long jury trial recently, and we, we had several co-accused. And if any of the other counsel would object, they'd quickly deal with it. Anytime I would object, jury out. And so uh, you do have to be prepared. Dealing with the Crown, um, some studies show that uh, juries may not like you being so respectful because they expect you to 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 be opponents how are you able to reconcile civility and uh, protection of your client i you know my my i try to get along with the crown as much as possible um i know those those studies may be out there but i think at the end of the day a lot of juries will respect that it's, it's a professional environment the prosecutor has a job uh, the defense lawyer has a job um Again, it's also, you got to understand something about this business in terms of how you deal with the Crown Attorney. Um, there's an infinite amount of work that anyone can put into a file. So if you really want to light a fire under somebody 
and make this thing personal. You're just you're just really giving them the gas to keep going harder and harder and harder at that file. So they may instead of stopping working at 11 p.m., they may they may go to 3 a.m. because they just oh I hate Hussein so much. I got I got I got to get him. I got to beat him. So you got to pick your battles. Uh, you really got to pick your battles. Unnecessary fights just detract from your attention. They, they, you know, focus your energy on your defense, on your closing, on your preparation of your client to testify because you only have so much energy. But yeah, I think you, sh you should definitely keep it professional with the crown. How, how, how do you prep a client to testify? I know you've talked to us about you have to have that theory down. You know what you're going to say at the end of the case. Uh, you've completely reviewed disclosure. Um, how is it that you go about uh, reviewing with your client you know, the second the trial starts, you've done all that prep, even with the client. Uh, but as the case goes along, in case they have to testify. Your your client really has to know the defense. Your client, um, I think my ultimate goal is I don't feel my client should be asked any question on the stand that we haven't discussed. It's your job as a defense lawyer to anticipate all of the different questions he's going to be asked, uh, he or she is going to be asked, and all the different ways they may attack them and prepare them for it. And I think you really need to involve your client in the theory so they understand what it is because you may you may not think of every line of questioning and there's gonna be a moment where they have to swim on their own. And if they understand the theories and they understand what makes a good witness versus a bad witness, they're able to deal with those questions um, appropriately at the time, um, live in action. Mock cross-examination before your client testifies. How important is that? I think they're great. Uh, we do them a lot at our office. Um, it, it's 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 a foreign experience for most you know accused to testify at their trial, and the even you know they may think I'm going to stick to my my plan here. Like if you have an argumentative type of client, they may say, "Yeah, don't worry, I won't be argumentative with the crown." But when they're in that practice mock cross examination and someone's really getting under the skin and they feel like they're they're looking like a fool they may jump out of character there, right? So I think it's important to do mock crosses, do as many as you can, they're great. Um, what was your favorite jury trial to date? My favorite jury trial, um, you know, I, I, had a, I, had, um, I had an attempted murder that, you know, there's multiple lawyers involved in. It was a particularly discreditable uh, witness with a lot of material for me to work with. So I, I enjoyed that trial just because I had the ammo, right? I felt like the I had the ammo to discredit this person, and ultimately these people were acquitted, and, and it felt good to get to the right result. Any fears when uh, you're about to stand up for cross examination or or any examination or any motion? Do you, I, do you, do you also suffer from that, like everybody else? I guess I I feel like um, you know you you always have a, a little bit of nerves. I think they 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 calm down. I think depending on your personality, you may or may not have nerves. Nerves are not a, you know, being nervous is not a bad thing. I know a lot of lawyers, because they're the nervous personality types, they are so prepared that, you know, they they just do excellent job after excellent job because of that. They can't function if they, if they, ha if, you know, if they're nervous and other lawyers are never get nervous, but you know, a little bit of nerves isn't going to hurt you, but you get up there as long as you're prepared, as long as you've bounced your case theory off of other lawyers and they've given you the green light, um, you go with it and you, you live with the result. What recommendations would you have for a young lawyer who might be nervous before they embarked on their first trial or jury trial? Uh, my advice to everybody is, listen, get a mentor, get multiple mentors, run your theory by multiple people. Your theory may not be the greatest, but it may be the only one that's possible on the facts, right? So once you know that you've done everything you can for your client, I think your nerves will go down. 
you, you've done your job, you've presented your theory, um, and just be as prepared as possible. Because we've spent some time on jury trials, and I know that uh, it is a large part of your practice. But when you're in a judge alone trial, are there things that you employ that are different? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think a judge alone trial, the judge doesn't want any of the flair, any of the dramatics that some lawyers employ uh, with a jury. There are certain things like basic concepts that you'd have to ask six or seven questions about uh, in front of a jury that you don't need to explain to a trial judge because they know what's going on. Um, even the importance of a piece of evidence, a trial judge is going to know this severely impacts this witness's credibility. Uh, it may, may not be so clear for in front of a jury trial, so you have to kind of demonstrate why this point's important, and you'll say to a witness, well, I'm going to say this at the end, so you know, give me your explanation on this point. So yeah, definitely things are different. I think judges like efficiency, um, and they want you to get to the point as soon as possible. You had discussed earlier with an exhibits officer where you can get your theory out in front of a jury. Is there any point in time you're able to get a roadmap to a judge alone sitting trial judge? I, I tell, I tell, I try to tell my trial judge from the beginning, you know, it's, it's just a judge alone trial. This is my theory. This is going to be my argument at the end, uh, your honor, just to help focus the, the judge as well, because that helps them with their note taking and focus on what's really important. And, and judges love when you get to the point, you know, the sooner you can do that, the sooner you can get confident in your decision, uh, the sooner everything will be smoother for you in court. So if I were to ask you some rapid fire questions, I know if I said prelim, no prelim, yeah, it's prelim. Gonna... <laughs> um, if it's going to be judge alone, jury. Jury. If it's uh, 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 jury members, jury pick. Um, not that you have many challenges yeah. left. Um, what do you look for? I like educated people. I, I, I like individuals. I like to figure out how educated they are because ultimately what they're doing, if they're doing their job in a, in a jury trial is applying a bunch of academic type of rules, a different standard of proof that really requires some some heavy mental ability. So I like a smart jury. Um, that's what I want. I know some lawyers may disagree. There may be a, a situation where you don't want a smart jury, but I think most of the way I structure most of my defenses, if it's based on, you know, um, having some doubt at the end of the day and an intellectual challenge, I like a smart jury. Okay. Um, closings. Are they... An hour? Are they four hours? Depends on the case, right? Some, I think some, the, the quicker you can get your message out in, in the most persuasive fashion, that's what you want to do. But some cases, there's just so much evidence that it, it can't be an hour. Uh, but I think you, you definitely have their attention for only a certain period of time. So you want to really, really focus and cut it down and really hammer the points that you want. But at the same time, you don't want to sacrifice anything. So it's really dependent on the case. But ideally... Yeah, an hour, maybe a bit more is your target if you can get it done. Closing, notes or no notes? I don't read my closing. I know a lot of great lawyers who get great results who do so. Uh, it doesn't work for me. I like my, I make my points. I have points in front of me, and then I, and I work off the point after I look at it. So it really depends on, on you. Some lawyers are fantastic at reading. They can read their entire jury close, and they can do it and still have that, that same level of interaction and engagement with the jury. I find personally, when if I'm reading, I can't engage with the jury member. I, I don't make it's harder to make eye contact and work that way. But if, if you're great, if you're great at doing it, do it that way. Ultimately, do it the way that best works for you. Um, there's no uh, one size fits all. 
There are many great lawyers in the city who achieve great results doing things completely different from one another. I see that myself in my own office. So um, I think develop your own self, see what works for you and go from there. And PowerPoint, no PowerPoint, anything electronic, anything video that you will show the jury? I think PowerPoints can be great. Uh, if you can pull it off, I think PowerPoints, one, one, they can get to the point where they're too cluttered and there's too much information. But if you can hit the sweet spot on a PowerPoint, I think it can really be persuasive. Okay. Um, any other information that you would love to share with a young lawyer who's about to embark on a quarter century career? <laughs> um, share it with us. I just say get a mentor. Uh, enjoy the early years when you're, when, you're, when you're just learning, when it's less of a business. Uh, when everything's new to you, um, and and just enjoy it as you go along, and let let things happen naturally, let your career develop naturally, and, and and try to enjoy it as much as possible. Well, today we were lucky to have you here. Thank you. Paul. Uh, your reputation is one of just integrity, so I'm very pleased that you were able to join us. Um, I'm going to ask you if you want to plug the firm or or where do people uh, reach out? Where can people reach out to find you? We can find where it's Supersonic, O'Connor, Robbins, Ross, and Angelini. Uh, you can find us online at criminaltriallawyers.ca. Uh, anything you need to know about us is there. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. A shout out to our fantastic producers, Xenia Sethna and Jason Cooper. For more free legal education and to check out what we've been doing for the past 10 years, go to thelawgarage.com. That is thelawgarage.com.